All right. Are we ready to get started? It's 1 o'clock. Uh, my name is Emma Carroll. I'm an oncology pharmacist at the University of Chicago. And this is Dr. Alan Moss, who is a gastroenterologist at um, Beth Israel and Harvard Medical School. So today, we are going to present supporting biosimilars integration in patient-centered medical home strategies for patient education, communication, and shared decision-making. I have no conflicts of interest relating to the subject matter of this presentation, and below are the conflicts of interest for Dr. Moss. The objectives are on this slide, and I know they are also available on the app, um, so you can access them there as well. All right, so I'm going to start off with an introduction um, on the current biosimilar landscape. First, um, to understand biosimilars, you really have to understand the basics of biologics. So biologics are um, very complex structures that are not easily characterized or identified, and they are produced in living organisms. And as you can see on the slide in the graphic, mon monoclonal antibodies are about 1,000 times the size of your conventional drugs, such as aspirin. So they're very complex um, structures. The FDA um, gives the definition of biologics as an umbrella term for vaccines, blood, gene therapy, allergenics, somatic cells, tissues, and recombinant therapeutic proteins. And for the sake of this talk, I would say the majority are directed towards the recombinant therapeutic proteins. While biologics have revolutionized the treatment of many disease states, they, are significant, they have a significant financial burden to patients, payers, and the medical system as a whole. In the US, biologics make up 38% of the pharmaceutical market, yet it only encompasses about 2% of patients that are prescribed these medications. In 2017, only five biologics made up 33% of the commercial medical benefit drug spending. Many times these medications can cost the patient about $100,000 per year. When you look at the US, it account, biologics account for about 200 billion in net drug spending a year. Globally, biologics by 2020 are projected to have revenue of $343.8 billion. So the takeaway here is that biologics make up a disproportionately large amount of spending compared to the percentage of patients that are on them. Okay, so as seen in the previous slide, biologics are com complex structures and eliminate, originate from living organisms. Therefore, an identical copy like a generic, cannot be created. This is where biosimilars come in. The FDA defines biosimilars as highly similar but not identical to an already licensed biologic product, and I'll refer to this as a reference product, in terms of quality, safety, and efficacy. Um, they have to prove that they're highly similar in structure and function and no clinically meaningful difference in safety, purity, and potency, um, this is usually achieved through pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, and immunogenicity testing. And Dr. Moss will talk more about this. The Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act of 2019 was an amendment to the Public Health Ser um, Service Act, and it created an abbreviated licensure pathway to create biosimilars. 
The goal of this act was the thought that if we had biosimilars, we could provide more treatment options, increase access to life-saving medications, and lower the healthcare costs through more competition. There's a projected, um, this was the sneak peek, so in 10 years, between 2017 to 2026, there's an estimated $54 billion in savings that we can see in direct costs with the initiation of biosimilars. So I created this slide just to have a visual for you of the increasing number of biosimilars that are being FDA approved. So the first FDA-approved biosimilar in the United States was in 2015 with Philgrastum SNDZ, or Zarzio is the brand name, and this was a biosimilar for the reference product Philgrastum, or Nupigen. And as you can see, every year we get more and more FDA approvals for biosimilars. As of this year, so far, we have seven FDA-approved biosimilars, which is the same as all of 2018. And I would only expect this to, be get, to become more and more. So currently, there's 800 biosimilars in the pipeline. And we'll talk more about um, challenges with biosimilars, but as a consequence of patent settlements, the first biosimilars for adalimumab is projected to be in 2023. And they're also working on a biosimilar for insulin glargine. Here is a cost comparison of the biosimilars that are currently on the market and the reference product. So as you can see, um, there's about a 15% decrease in cost for Canginti, which is the biosimilar for trastuzumab or Herceptin, as well as a 15% decrease in, for Mavasi, which is Bevacizumab, the reference product Bevacizumab or Avastin, and about a 35% decrease in prices for Infliximab and Filgrastum. So while they are cheaper, there are differences. This is the average wholesale price. So this will depend, you know, it will be different institution by institution. And as I mentioned, there are challenges confronting um, biosimilar integration. <clears throat> so one of them is knowledge. So a lot of time we have a lack of knowledge, formal education, and familiarity that leads us to having a negative bias. So in a study where the physicians and pharmacists were surveyed, about 23% of physicians and about 40% of pharmacists indicated having complete or good knowledge about biosimilars. So there are concerns about biosimilar safety, efficacy, extrapolation, and interchangeability. <clears throat> There's also a concept called the nocebo effect, which is basically a negative equivalent of the placebo. This kind of creates a vicious cycle. So if um, providers aren't very educated on biosimilars, it kind of trickles down to the patient, and the patient isn't familiar with biosimilars, and then it kind of leads to them not being taken up as easily. There's also um, manufacturer exclusivity patents and also rebates that the reference product manufacturers implement to kind of um, get payers and institutions to use the reference products. 
There's also been delayed market entry. I mentioned this a little bit before, but there's ongoing patent litigation. So if you have a reference product that continues to keep trying to prolong the patent, it's going to delay many of the um, market um, entry for some of these biosimilars. Many of these agreements lead to a much further delayed entry, like I mentioned, adalimumab in 2023. So far, the guidelines are not including a lot of the biosimilars as well, and once those are being added to the guidelines, I foresee uh, providers you know, implementing them more. And also, in a study where they surveyed providers, they found that when they did prescribe bio, biosimilars, typically it was in biologic treatment-naive patients. So what this means to me is that providers feel, still are a little hesitant, like they are willing to prescribe it, but maybe not willing to prescribe these biosimilars in a patient who is already on the product, the reference product. Also, we have different treatment settings. So I work in oncology, and so many times if a patient is in a curative setting, meaning that their cancer can be cured, providers tend to be a little more hesitant to use the, the biosimilar product compared to the reference product. All right, so I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Moss. Great, thank you. That was a great introduction. I uh, hope you're all enjoying lunch. So I think a great analogy, since you're having lunch, is if you're having rice or orzo, each grain of rice is highly similar, but not identical to the next grain of rice on your plate. That's biosimilars. That's all you need to know. Okay. So when, when you were asked at the end, how confident are you, I want everyone to say they're 100% confident that they know what biosimilars are. All right. So, so that's the FDA definition, highly similar but not identical. And so there has to be no clinically meaningful differences at any of these levels, purity, safety, or potency. And that's enough to get approved by the FDA uh, for any of these indications. Now, I'm a gastroenterologist. I'm a clinical researcher. So most of the examples I'm going to give you are from GI diseases, but they're certainly applicable to whatever area of interest you guys have. Um, now, I was given a long list of topics to cover in the next 30 minutes. I'm not going to hit all of them, but I'm going to give you an overview of things that are, I think, useful talking points, and particularly from a clinician perspective, talking points that you can have with your, your colleagues to overcome some of the barriers that we've, uh, we've just uh, raised. Um, so here's a great scenario. Very highly motivated, engaged physician having a conversation about biosimilar with a very interested, excited patient about getting their biosimilars, Right. This is the ideal scenario. Does that happen in the real world? Most of the time, not. The physician's a bit wishy-washy about it. The patient's a bit wishy-washy about it. And it's kind of a, a stalemate on how do we encourage, how do we overcome some of, these, uh, some of these barriers? So addressing barriers to uptake. Um, so here's an example, and this is from my own practice. You know, this is a young woman who's been on Remicade for Crohn's for a long time, 12 years. Intermission feels fantastic. She changes insurance, and her new plan says, well, we won't cover Remicade anymore, but we will cover, uh, in this case, Inflectra, and we'll only cover it as a home infusion. So naturally, the patient calls the office. The office puts it through to the pharmacist. The pharmacist puts it through to the MD. And the question going around the, the patient is, 
Why am I changing? Is it safe for me to change? And the uh, questions in the clinical office are, you know, what's the paperwork involved in this? Is this going to be more paperwork for us? What's the whole process? How do we justify uh, making the change for this patient, so-called switch? Or if we're going to try and decline it, how do we justify making an appeal against it? So lots of uncertainty that typically comes up. And if you're a patient in remission for 12 years and been asked to switch, there's really not much motivation for the patient to switch at a personal level. So these are some of the things we're going to think about. If you look at the strategies for integration of biosimilars into practice, I think everyone in this room will agree that the biggest barrier is over here. You know, there's certainly the, the FDA totally gets it and totally bought into this process. Uh, the payers totally see the economic benefits of it. Um, but the real uncertainty is how do you get the healthcare professionals and the patients to accept and buy into the concept or at least be open to having the discussion about switching to a biosimilar. So here's what the typical conversation goes like. You know, so on the physician end, their main question is, is this product the same or as good as the product I've been prescribing for the last 12 years? Um, does it work as well? If I switch person from biologic A to biologic B, is it going to induce some kind of antibodies that this patient didn't have before? Uh, on the patient's end, the other questions that come up is, who's making this biosimilar? You know, I, I told one of my patients that Samsung make them, and the question they came up with was, so they're making TVs and drugs, right, in the same factory or different factory? But they're the kind of big concepts that come up. Um, and often, you know, the, if you think of a drug like Humira, there is really good support for, there's a 1-800-Humira number. There's lots of good support for those. Will that be the same if you switch to biosimilar adalimumab that's what patients want to know. You know, is that phone number going to be still available? Is the pen as good as the pen with Humira? So that's the typical patient that, that, that patients are asking me. And then finally, will my copay or insurance costs change? The bottom line right now appears to be no. Someone's going to make a saving. I'm not really sure is it going to be at the individual patient level, but the system will make a saving in the long term. Um, and finally, if you've got a 10-minute consultation, You've got to address all those and the other reason the patient was there. So that really squeezes the physician's interest in trying to have this long, uh, engaged conversation if we already know a third of physicians are not that comfortable talking about biosimilars in the first place. So this is a challenge for you and for me. Um, this is a nice example from talking to oncologists, small study. Most of them couldn't define a biosimilar, so that's not a good starting point. Um, and most of them, or at least half of them, considered that it was basically a generic drug, which is not the case, as we know from the definition. For them, though, switching, the most important thing for them is, is this as safe and is it as efficacious? And that's the question we want to try and address. However, we talked about shared decision-making. Most physicians did not feel that that was part of the conversation, that there should be a shared decision with the patient and the physician. That was ranked pretty lowly on their list. So that's something that we will need to work on. A survey of probably many people in this room. This was from the uh, specialty pharmacy professionals ranked what are the biggest barriers or how to mostly improve adoption for biosimilars and what ranked number one? MDs. Improving uh, education within the physician population so they could at least have the conversation and understand better because they're the patient dealing with the patient's questions most of the time, the frontline team. Everything else is in there, but certainly educating prescribers was the number one priority of improving integration. 
So for, for prescribers, how do you do that? Most prescribers go to meetings like this, so educational outreach is going to be key, providing small pieces of digestible, excuse the pun, knowledge to prescribers on what biosimilars are, are they safe, how do they work. Uh, publication of trials, we, they have been biosimilars in Europe now for a long time. There are tons of papers on the experience in Europe all showing good results. And so seeing those being published in major academic journals is one way to encourage uh, the prescribers to, to shift attitudes. And then finally, seeing KOLs or key opinion leaders talking on this topic at meetings is also important. I know in GI, up even two or three years ago, most opinion leaders would say at the podium, we're really not sure about biosimilars, we need more data, uh, a lot of hesitancy and nervousness. But that's started to shift now, and there's a lot more openness to biosimilars because of the experience from Europe. So the analogy I like to give my colleagues is if you were to give a brewery some malt, yeast, and water and said, brew me a beer, and gave it to four different breweries, the same ingredients, the beers would be highly similar, but they would not be identical. And in fact, the Remicade we're using today is highly similar, but not identical to the Remicade we used in 2007 and the Remicade that was approved back in 1997 because the manufacturing process has changed several times over the last 20 years. So I often tell my colleagues, Remicade today is a biosimilar Remicade last year, and Remicade 10 years ago, and Remicade 10 years before that. So that's one way of thinking of it. These are all made in nature's factory. They're made from cell lines. And nature, by default, cannot make an identical product every time. So it's always going to be slightly different. The beer will taste the same but it's just slightly different no matter which brew we're made of. So that's one analogy I often think of. So it will taste the same whether it's Reflexus, Inflectra, Remicade 2010, or Remicade 1997. They're all highly similar, but just slightly different. Um, and just to illustrate that point, Remicade, since 1997, has had almost 40 manufacturing changes since the original product was approved. So again, to re remember, the biologic today is very different, or somewhat different, to the original approved biologic, and so it's almost a biosimilar of what we've used in the past. And that's a way to help overcome some barriers when we think about pioneer or originator products. The same occurs for Humira, for Emeril, for all the, the big biologics on the, in the market. And part of the process for approving this, these drugs involves analysis of the antibody itself, some lab studies on how it's working, and also its, down, its engagement of the target. And you may see, for example, that different uh, forms of infliximab may have slightly different sugars on the antibody. They may have slightly different uh, effects in cells. But at the bottom line in this study, their effects on binding TNF, which is how these drugs work, was almost identical. And this illustrates that you can have drugs that are highly similar but not identical, but the net downstream effect on the target is exactly the same. And that, these kind of studies help to kind of reinforce that uh, issue of how they're different, but they're, how they're slightly different, but at the cellular level doing very much the same thing you wanted to do in treating a given disease. But I think for most of us in clinical practice, most of the best experience or um, evidence comes from the experience globally. I mean, we have... If you look in PubMed, there are probably 50 or 60 papers just reporting the experience with infliximab alone, biosimilar infliximab from all over the world, from Korea, from all over Europe. And so 
that level of comfort is now out there. It's not something that we're waiting to see. The papers are all there, and these are just a few examples that have been published from looking at 50, 100, 200 patients from various uh, parts of Europe and Korea. Um, and this just summarizes, if you look at infliximab, which is, which is Remicade, the original product, looking at studies where patients in Europe sw swapped from Remicade to infliximab DYYB or Inflectra, you can see the response rates, remission rates, and infusion reaction rates over time were essentially what you'd expect if you followed a patient on Remicade for the same time frame. So similar level of comfort in terms of patient experience, both safety-wise and efficacy-wise. And this really is why, if you look at Europe now, for some countries, 100% of anti-TNF use in terms of infliximab is biosimilar infliximab. For example, you can see here Denmark, almost 100% of infliximab used now in Denmark is biosimilar infliximab. So the comfort and confidence within Europe has led this to be almost universally adopted at a, a national payer level. And so this gives you experience and comfort to report these experience elsewhere. And you know, a patient with Crohn's or colitis in Europe is very similar to a patient with Crohn's or colitis in Boston. Now, this third factor in terms of improving patient prescriber engagement is the professional bodies. And often they'll come out with statements on do they support biosimilars, what their feelings on biosimilars are. Uh, my personal experience or, or feeling is that these have been very, very cautious to date. They have recommended the FDA do lots more testing, uh, wait for more experience, despite all the experience from Europe and the rest of the world. So you can see here, this is the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation requesting lots of requirements for use of biosimilars in practice. Same with the American Gastro Association, so very conservative. And in fact, just recently, the, Amer the American Association of Rheumatology had a similar guideline, again, holding back on recommending switching between biosimilars for anti-TNFs because of a kind of a, an excess of caution. I think as we see more and more cumulative experience being published, this caution will start to uh, decline at least. So that's some of the ways you can think about engaging your colleagues to address some concerns. The other thing uh, I was asked to talk about is how are these approved in the first place? Is it different to approving aspirin or a drug like aspirin? And if you imagine the process for approving, uh, the, uh, let's say, approving Remicade, it's very much a most of the time and effort and cost is do, in doing large phase three clinical trials to get approval. Less work relatively is done in the assay itself. That essentially has been, is flipped for getting approval of a biosimilar. Most of the work goes into showing that the biosimilar is very similar to the reference drug and less time and effort is required going into the actual clinical trials. You basically just need to confirm in one indication where the reference product has been approved that is also equally efficacious and safe to get approved. So a flip pyramid, and you can see why the cost difference between this pyramid and this pyramid is, is quite large for, for uh, manufacturers. And in fact, many of the manufacturers of the reference products are now also making their own biosimilars. So everyone's getting into the game. Um, from an FDA point of view, you have to show all of these to get approved. So highly similar products, similar toxicity in animals, similar, similar results in the clinical study. And that's enough to get FDA approval. If you want to be approved as an interchangeable product, you also have to show that you get the same clinical results in any patient, and switching between drugs does not produce any adverse events. And the switching is the crux of the matter right now. That's where most people are fixated on. 
Can you just switch from drug X to drug Y easily? What's the impact for patients? And how do you prove that doing that is safe? And that's where most people right now, I think, are hung up. Um, so the FDA talks about what they call the totality of evidence. So they take all this information, the analysis studies, uh, the uh, extrapolation studies from one disease to another, and the interchangeable data were available and says, okay, on the basis of all this, the totality of evidence, you get approved as a biosimilar or not. So it is a rigorous process. There's a lot involved, but it's mostly on the chemistry end and safety end and toxicity proving similarity, and less so on the clinical end as the original product was, was done. And here's an example for infliximab. The study that got infliximab approved for many indications were, was a phase three study in rheumatoid arthritis and a phase one study in ankylosing spondylitis. On the basis of showing efficacy and safety there, the biosimilar version then was approved for all these indications. So Crohn's disease, colitis, arthritis, and so forth, but not pediatric ulcerative colitis. But that then was used to get approval right across a range of conditions. And that will be similar for whatever disease of interest um, you're most of interest in. So the interchangeability question is a little bit more complicated. You've proven the molecule is highly similar. You've proven that it behaves in at least one disease just the same as the preference product behaved. To switch people, to be interchangeable, you've got to do these what are called switching studies. And you can have a simple switch study where you basically take the patient on a drug and then switch them over to the biosimilar. Single switch where you go from one to the other. Or multiple switch, you go from one to the other, back, 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 so you go biosimilar reference, biosimilar reference over a series of sequences. And if you can show that over that time frame, efficacy was the same, safety was the same, then you could be considered an interchangeable biosimilar. This is most important at the pharmacy payer level uh, because then you can do switching without really any involvement of the MD or the patient in theory. So how do these, what do these look like? So again, here's an example from Korea with, with infliximab and Crohn's disease. They took, apologies, they took 200 patients, 30-week follow-up. They got either infliximab or biosimilar or switched from one to the other or one to the other. So the biosimilar to the reference or the reference to biosimilar. No matter what treatment you got, at six months later, everyone had the same results. So that gives you some confidence in switching within Crohn's disease with biosimilar infliximab. That's what these kind of studies look like. Six-month follow-up, don't switch, switch, or switch back and forth, and looking similar results and similar safety in this setting. The same, and this was a big, big study from Norway that actually Norwegian government paid for this because they wanted to know if we, across Norway, give everyone biosimilar infliximab, is it going to be safe? Is it going to be insightful? So it's called a NORSWITCH study. And again, they took um, 200 patients in remission, so they're already quiet, and switch them back and forth, so either Remicade or the biosimilar, and results were the same. About a third relapsed over a year. Antibodies to the drug rates were the same. So on the basis of this, they concluded that you could switch patients in remission from the reference product to the biosimilar. No difference in safety, no difference in efficacy. Now, what happens in practice here in the United States? So there's really three scenarios. There's the, first of all, the prescriber, uh, has a patient on the drug and the prescriber then prescribes the biosimilar, right? That is the easiest solution. The prescriber, the patient initiated, it's easy, there's less conflict. The second scenario is that the prescriber prescribes it, but it gets interchanged at the pharmacy level or payer level to the biosimilar. 
And that is, in theory, requires uh, local state-level regulation, either exists or requires it. In reality, what will happen is, going forward, is payers will just uh, require interchangeability of the drug based on their payment plan, regardless of how the patient or the physicians feel about it. And the third level is that the pharmacist at the pharmacy level could just basically dispense an interchangeable biosimilar, again, with or without the patient's and the physician's uh, acknowledgement or, or, or permission. So these are the, if you like, the gray zones right now. Uh, each state has or is thinking about legislation to legislate this locally. So whatever state you're in, there may already be legislation in place or going through the process to determine how this interchangeability or switching happens. Who needs to know? Do you need permission or not? This is all now being evolved. And so you can see your state there on the map to see where, where your state is at in terms of does it have legislation or not. I can tell you in Massachusetts, free plug there for the Patriots, um, the, the rules were put in that the pharmacy made make the product interchangeable um, unless the physician or the prescriber says, says no. Um, you have to tell them within a reasonable time frame. Is that 24 hours, two years uh, to be determined? Um, you must notify the patient, and you have to have a record that the substitution was made. So the biggest fear of most people is that a pharmacist would switch you from reference to biosimilar and no record would be of actually at what point that happened or what the biosimilar you switched to was. So the key is having an audit of knowing when that happened and what the biosimilar you were switched to was. Um, and so the FDA right now says, have really said, well, we approve the biosimilar. We will leave it to the states to determine interchangeability rules, which is where we're at right now. But as I mentioned earlier, most payers are going to decide themselves we're only going to cover biosimilar X, and regardless of what you feel about it, that's what the pa if the patient wants this biosimilar, this is what we'll cover. And that's what's going to probably most happen and is already happening in reality. And then finally, there's many pharmacists here. At the pharmacy level, the three main obstacles that have been identified are how this will work into formerly management plans. You know, do you have non-exclusive biosimilars or exclusive biosimilars and where the new biosimilar will fit in with your exclusivity arrangement with the pioneer agent, the reference agent? Uh, can you do automatic substitutions at the pharmacy level? Again, to be determined at a state level. And then finally, what's called a rebate trap. Now, you guys understand this a lot better than I do. Um, what I do know is this is a nice study uh, uh, or a it was more of a letter in JAMA last year looking at the implications of switching. If you switch from a, a reference product to a biosimilar and lose your discount from the um, producer or who you're purchasing it from and only half your patients switch, it actually ends up costing you more. If you can get everyone to switch, then there's big cost savings for the payers. But if you end up this 50-50 mix and you lose your rebates, then actually that, the net cost there is higher to the, to the payer than the original plan. So this gets into economics of this, which is beyond my pay grade. But I think it's worth knowing that it's certainly complex because if you lose your rebates from your manufacturers, that may actually make the biosimilar more expensive than the reference product or not. Um, so all those backroom deals, this is what they all implicate or all affect. So think about it. So here's a patient I've had, and this is to kind of wrap us around to the end of it. The patient is prescribed Remicade by the prescriber. The patient's plan will only approve uh, Inflectra. 
the patient goes to the uh, pharmacy, the specialty pharmacy, they have an arrangement where they will uh, dispense Renflexus. So in theory, you could have on one end X drug being prescribed, but on the patient end, a totally different drug being dispensed to the patient. That is in, in one theory of how this could all work out as it plays out at the practice level. The key for patients, pharmacists, and physicians is that there is a record of how this happens and what actually the patient gets dispensed or infused at the end of the day. Because you need to know what they're getting because let's say next year they change plan, they switch back to Remicade. Two years down the line, they switch back to Inflectra. You need to know where those switches are happening to be able to track that over time if an issue comes up with safety or if an issue comes up with immunogenicity. So I've presented some areas of certainty. There are also lots of areas of uncertainty, right? One of them is uh, if you keep switching back and forth from a biosimilar to a reference, will you develop more antibodies over time to that product or not? We, all, we have single switch studies showing no, but what if you do triple switches or quadruple switches? Will you start accumulating antibodies over time to those switching back and forth? We don't know that answer to that question. Uh, I've already mentioned we have to be able to track, even if the interchangeability happens, what you're getting infused at this infusion versus what was infused six months ago. And then finally, this concept of drift, and it, it comes back to the beer analogy. If the brewer starts changing their yeast, you're going to get a drift in the quality or the uh, taste of the beer. And the same applies to biosimilars. Let's say you start here. This is your originator, and this is your biosimilar. They look very similar overall. There's a change in the manufacturing process. There's a drift in the overall, um, let's say, uh, sugars on the uh, reference antibody. That then changes again, so there's a drift away from the reference product. The biosimilar, which was originally very similar to the reference, is now drifting through its own manufacturing changes away from the reference product. There may be difference in the sugars, how they affect um, the conformation of the antibody. The question that then this raises is, are these now still biosimilar? And I think that's a question that will need to be addressed over time with this manufacturing drift. If 10 years from now you're on a biosimilar, is the same as the biosimilar? Is it as biosimilar to the reference as it was when you started 10 years prior? And that, I, get, I think, is, is to be determined. So I'll bring it back to the patient and the, the, the physician. What's in it for me? I think most physicians are saying lots more paperwork. Uh, I think for patients, most patients are saying, uh, if I feel worse, is it the biosimilar or is it just a coincidence, the so-called nocebo effect? And am I going to see any of the cost savings? The insurance plan may see cost savings. The pharmacy benefit manager may see cost savings. But am I going to see cheaper insurance or less co-pays? And I think uh, that's to be determined. Thank you for your time, and I'll pass it back to Dr. Carl. All right. So now I'd like to focus on the need for patient education and shared decision-making. So we've talked a lot about different barriers for biosimilar use, and I just want to focus on those patient-based barriers. So a lot of patients tend to be aware of those reference product names. They go online, they look you know, at different blogs and different forums, and they see the brand name of a medication. And I think that 
you know, the general knowledge is kind of like these are generic products, just like they would have a generic aspirin product. And uh, they want to know that if they're prescribed, say, Herceptin, that um, they're going to get Herceptin. And maybe there would be some hesitation if they found out they weren't actually receiving that product, but potentially a biosimilar. <clears throat> So again, just like the provider lack of knowledge, the patient lack of knowledge can also be a barrier because if they don't understand what the approval process is, then they may, um, they may be hesitant to switch. Again, as I mentioned earlier, if they have a curative disease, they may be hesitant to use a, or a biosimilar and want to use the reference product. And even their own physician, their doctor, if they feel like there's any hesitancy in their voice or in their communication, they may feel like a little nervous to switch. <clears throat> and then we've talked about the nocebo effect. So this is having negative perceptions and expectations and then that leading to negative consequences. So like the, the negative equivalent of a placebo. So. I'm gonna talk about this, I think, next. Um, so one way we can avoid this nocebo effect is managing the expectations of the patient and the provider. And I think this is accomplished through education and empowering the patients as well as the providers. If we increase the confidence and familiarity for the provider, we'll decrease that knowledge gap and reduce the negative bias that may be transferred between the physician and the patient and reduce those negative expectations that leave, lead to this potential negative consequence. There is some data that suggests that there is a nocebo effect with biosimilars. So there was a study done with infliximab. There were open label studies and then double blind studies. And there were more treatment discontinuations with the open label studies compared to the double blind studies. So this isn't a proven idea for biosimilars, but there is data that suggests it. So really, um, you know, trying to increase the confidence can help reduce those negative expectations. There's a little conflicting data on what to do with counseling patients. So some of the literature says, well, just don't even tell the patient what the side effects are. Because if they don't know what the side effects are, we're not gonna induce that negative expectation. But when you look at the bioethics data on what the best way to communicate with the patient is, I have a hard time, and especially as a pharmacist, um, doing that. And I feel like transparency is probably the way to go. You know, just being honest and open with the patient and counseling them. Um, you don't have to overdo it, but at least let them know what to expect and what the most common um, issues are. And if they're biosimilar, they would be essentially the same counseling, whether you're using the reference product or the biosimilar. Um, there is some literature to suggest that actually educating the patient on the nocebo effect um, would help. I can't imagine in my own clinical practice sitting down kind of like what Dr. Moss suggested, you know, we only have a certain amount of time 
per patient encounter. I can't imagine you know, including that in my patient counseling, um, just because I feel like that in and of itself might invoke um, some negative expectations, but there is some literature to suggest that that may be helpful. And I think just generally reassuring the patient um, our confidence that they are highly similar and um, have many studies looking at uh, PK and PD and immunogenicity studies um, to help the patient feel better about their experience. And I do think informed decision making is very important and just having that open, honest discussion with the patient about what biosimilars are and why uh, the switch. So I'd like to give you just some tools and strategies that I've come across um, in my clinical practice. Um, and there also was a study looking at this extensive communication strategy. So in this study, what they did was a group um, split up one-to-one. -one. Half of the patients got this extensive communication strategy about biosimilars, which included notifying all the patients at the same time and clearly informing the patients why they're switching. And they found that the integration of the biosimilar into the institution actually was better when they use this extensive um, communication strategy compared to just kind of switching and not really doing this planning ahead of time. And so um, right now in my clinical practice, we're kind of discussing this a lot because we're trying to implement biosimilars. And a lot of the discussion is like, do we tell the patient? How do we tell the patient? And one form is using patient letters. So letting the patients know ahead of time that this switch is going to happen and give them the information in advance so they're not surprised when they come to clinic or come to infusion and they're getting a different product. Also, clearly informing the patients why we're switching. So let them know what are biosimilars and um, giving them a patient education sheet. And I've listed on the slide a few references that I thought were very good. So the FDA has several videos that I think are very useful. They talk about the approval process, what are biosimilars. It kind of gives you a good rundown. You could always refer your patients to the website. You just Google it and it comes up on like the first hit. And then you, there's also fact sheets that you can print out and give to patients as well for patient education. The European Society for Medical Oncology or ESMO also has really great patient education sheets. And since these have been around in Europe uh, for a, much longer than in the US, I feel like these patient education sheets are very well developed. And then the American Pharmacists Association also has patient education sheets that you can use. All right, so how do we integrate these biosimilars into the patient-centered medical home and medical neighborhood? So the five main functions of the patient-centered medical home are comprehensive care, patient-centered, accessible services, coordinated care, and quality and safety. And then along with that, the triple aim of improve patient outcomes, improve patient experience, and improve value. So for each of the functions of the PCMH, I've listed some ways that I think that we can integrate um, the implementation of biosimilars into the PCMH. So comprehensive care, 
Um, most of the literature supports an integrated team approach to um, implementing biosimilars. So working with the physicians, the advanced practice providers, pharmacists, nurses, all working together as a team to help integrate this into the institution as well as um, educating the patients. And then patient-centered, so using informed shared decision-making with the patient and also while we can't say it's going to individually help patients um, with affordability, the goal would be eventually um, by having these cost reductions, the patients would see a more affordable health care. Accessible services, um, we will help by implementing biosimilars provide more access to medications for patients and at a cheaper cost. For coordinated care, um, I would expect more patient communication and education if we implement these, um, this, what we have talked about today. And then is quality and safety. So if we share this biosimilar information, the approval process and the data that led to um, the approval of the biosimilars, I would expect this would increase um, the positive perceptions of biosimilars and lead to uh, better quality and safety. And then when you look at the triple aim, um, improved value, I would say, would be on the top of the priority. Um, if we integrate biosimilars across an institution, I would expect to see um, lower costs. All right, thank you very much for attending this talk.